There was one more announcement that we must have missed, and that is that starting next Sunday, our elementary Sunday school is starting back up after a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. So that's big news. So that's going to be, uh, is that kindergarten through fifth grade? Is that right? Yeah, kindergarten through fifth grade. We are going to be restarting what, was act- what I think was incredibly fruitful um, resource that we had, which was our New City Catechism. So for those of you who remember that, it was, it's a series of questions and answers that help our kids and actually help us to understand more fully our faith. But we're coupling that with a lot of the practices that we as a church have been doing, teaching the kids to connect with each other on a heart level, to, to pray to the Lord, to hear from the Lord, uh, to have that experience of God and with God and the knowledge of God that creates robust and faithful uh, followers of Jesus Christ. It's, it's discipleship. That's what we're doing. So I'm really excited. I want to thank all those who are volunteering and who are helping. And so it'll start next week uh, because we know that uh, vaccines are not available for our youngest ones. Everyone down there is going to be wearing a mask, including all the, all the teachers, even if they're vaccinated. We just want to uh, do our best to care for them. And um, it's going to be during this portion of the service. So the kids will gather with us to worship. They'll be here to worship with us and to hear all the announcements and what God is doing. And then at this moment, we will, starting next week, invite them to go downstairs right below us, and they're going to have their own class just for them. So I'm excited. It sounds like, you know, from your response, there's some excitement there. But it's just great to be able to do that after so long of it being away. And I think... I think that's it. So um, what I'm going to do here, just get myself oriented. All right, and I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to pray again. Lord, thank you that you're with us today, that you have uh, been preparing this space, this time. You've been preparing our hearts in ways that we don't even see And Lord, we just delight that you are a God who cares about us, a God who is intimately engaged with who we are and what we're doing, and that you you have something for each one of us today. And Lord, I know for myself, just kind of knowing what we're going to be talking about today with our conscience, uh, there there were challenges for me in preparation, and Lord, I hope there'll be challenges for all of us in all sorts of interesting but, um, but really good directions. Because, God, it's such an important thing for us to understand how you've created us to interact with you in regards to our life, our actions, our thoughts, uh, in ways that honor you, and that, Lord, our heart is to pursue your righteousness. That's our heart. So help us today in this time to get a better glimpse of how to do that, why to do it, and um, what we can do to do it better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you guys probably know, if you've been... Uh, watching the news or reading the newspapers or magazines or blogs, there's, there's actually uh, been a lot of talk recently and actually a lot of controversy and anger over the question of conscience. Uh, if you have noticed that with this pandemic that we've had uh, the last 18, is it 19 months now? I think I kind of get in my head how long it is, but it keeps moving, obviously, because it's still with us, unfortunately. There's been um, this increasing uh, number of, of articles and news commentaries, particularly about 
conservatives and about evangelical Christians in regards to masks and social distancing and now the vaccines. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of evangelical Christians, conservative Christians, have resisted at least some of those things. Uh, and, of course, many Christians have embraced them. And so what we have is this sense in our culture, in our society, this conflict between people whose conscience is telling them to do different things, things that are in contrast to one another and sometimes in opposition to one another. So the question is, how as Christians do we kind of approach this concept of conscience in a way that honors the Lord and honors one another? You know, there's been a lot of attention in the last few weeks because schools are starting back up. Uh, some uh, there have been some mandates from schools and businesses, states, and the federal government regarding vaccination. And so this question has come up. As a Christian, can I, can I be a conscientious objector? Can I get a religious exemption from these mandates and requirements? And as that has happened, there are a lot of people, especially a lot of non-Christians, who look at that with, with scorn, and they say, you know, how dare you? Because their perspective is one way, others' perspective is another way, and it creates this kind of a big mess. And as a result, it's drawn a great deal of criticism um, for those particularly who do not have strong religious convictions upon those who do. And it's brought up this whole question, not just around vaccines, but around all sorts of issues. What does it mean to be a conscientious, conscientious objector. In fact, I recently read, you may have heard about this, there's a church in California called Destiny Christian Church, and their pastor is issuing vaccine exemption letters for anyone who wants one, whether they, I think whether they go to their church or not. Anyone can, can write in or call in, and they can get a letter sent to them from the church giving them an exemption for their employer, for their school, uh, to try to help them to be one of those exempt people. And by when I say exempt, meaning they don't have to take the vaccine, but they can still go to school or they can still work in their job or the, you know, whatever it is that, that the mandate relates to. So this is obviously a huge issue. And even now, the, the, the COVID uh, pandemic is such that, I just looked it up today, there's about 100,000 people in America right now in the hospital with COVID-19. And there's about 1,000 people who are dying every day of this disease. So it's, it's really heavy. It's serious. And with the Delta variant and school starting up and young children not being able yet to get the vaccine, it creates a lot of strong emotion, right? So it's only going to get more heated as we go forward. So the question is, again, how do we respond to that? So today what I'd like to do and what I intend to do is I want to talk about our conscience. What is our conscience? Um, how is it formed? And can we trust it? Is it to be trusted? And then at the end, I'd like to take a little bit of time to talk about the specific kind of political or uh, uh, protest, if you will, called a religious conscientious objection. So when we think about these three questions, what is conscience? How is it formed? And um, can we trust it? 
you know, I think the first thing that pops into a lot of our minds, because we are so inundated with pop culture, is you either kind of get this image of Jiminy Cricket, right? Do you remember Jiminy Cricket? And Pinocchio, Pinocchio was made of wood, and he's made alive, but he's not yet a real boy. So he's provided with a conscience. His conscience is this little cricket who has, I think he has a cane and a top hat, maybe? And he sings songs, and he, he's kind of the face of Disney in some ways, but... Uh, he was the conscience for little Pinocchio, who didn't have an internal conscience, but he had an external conscience. And then the other image that you might get is, whether it's a TV show or a movie or a cartoon, is you get, poof, these little miniature yous. One in a white outfit with wings and a halo, your little angel self. The other in red with usually a tail, horns, and a pitchfork, your devil self, right? And then your angel self says, do the right thing. And your devil self says, do the wrong thing. And they fight. And then whoever wins, that's what you do. Right? Do we have it? We kind of have those images, right? And I think in some ways they're, they're a little helpful um, because they both speak to some element of what our conscience is. And really, the definition of a conscience, as we use the word in English, is just simply, it's this idea of an inner sense of right and wrong. You can think of it as a voice as a concept, as a thought, but it's an awareness of the moral aspects of your thoughts and actions. And so as you think things, as you do things, there's either an inner voice or an inner sense or some kind of thought process that says, this is right or this is wrong. And it's really, it's a, it's a cognitive function. It's a function of your mind and your brain. Uh, and it brings this emotional and rational response to everything you think, everything you say, and everything that you do. Now, in the Bible, there's a word that's often translated conscience, and it's used very similarly to our English word, so there's not a lot of difference that we can pull out or like understand it better by the word. But when we look at how it's used in Scripture, we actually can learn a lot about our conscience. So first of all, uh, Paul describes conscience as being something that's shared among Believers in God and non-believers. So in Romans 2, you don't need to turn there. It's just one quick verse. In Romans 2.15, he says this. He's talking about unbelievers right now. He says, They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. So he talks about some version of the law written on their hearts, he also talks about their conscience, and he also talks about their thoughts. So he's making some kind of distinction between these three things, and yet they work in unison to either defend or accuse people who break the law of God. You know, so the conscience that you have is not something that you gained when you became a Christian. It's not like when Pinocchio was given a conscience. We've all always had one, or at least we don't remember not having one. But uh, there is this reality that our conscience shifts and changes when we become a Christian, right? Can any of you think of anything that you did when you were not a Christian that you no longer do because you're a Christian? I'm hoping to see some hands go up. Okay, that's good. That's a positive thing. And what has happened is for a lot of Christians, some of them say, oh, my conscience is really, it's the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to me 
about right and wrong because I had this dramatic change and I just knew right away. Like sometimes I've, I've talked to people. I was a Christian. The day I became, a, I mean, I was not a believer. The day I became a Christian, I just stopped using foul language. It just, it just turned off. I didn't try. I didn't have to think about it. Or, you know, I was drinking and smoking and I just stopped. And we'll talk about some of those specifics later. But in their mind, God did it. The Holy Spirit was at work. It was no longer an issue. Uh, there's all sorts of examples that we know of that. And so, you know, kind of intuitive, we, intuitively, we, we connect the Holy Spirit in our conscience. And while it's true that the Holy Spirit does limit the sins of people, both believers and non-believers, we read that in the Scripture, um, there's really important reasons to believe that our conscience and the Holy Spirit are very distinct things. They're not the same. For example, if you read in Titus 1, uh, verse 15, Paul describes people who are corrupt and don't believe in God. He says nothing is pure for them because, as Paul says, their consciences are corrupted or defiled. He says that, you know, their, their conscience, which was uh, something that helped them to do right, has now been transformed into something that encourages them to do wrong. You see that? Because it's not that it, it's just corrupt. It was corrupted. It was something that was done to it. It was defiled. And so clearly the work of a defiled conscience is not in partnership with the Holy Spirit. It's working against the Holy Spirit. And by the way, there are examples even where Christians can have corrupted consciences. And the Holy Spirit has to work against our conscience to draw us into moral truth, into righteousness, into holiness. And Paul even says and we'll come back to this one later, he says, there are times when his conscience clears him of all guilt, but he doesn't therefore stand guiltless before God. So even believers' conscience can be working in opposition to the work of the Holy Spirit. That's really important for us to understand. So um, in Romans 14, we see that Christians have differing views on conscience. By the way, we're going to spend a lot of our time in that passage today, so if you want to pull it up now, we're going to be looking at it very soon. So some Christians have opposite ideas based on their conscience of what they ought to do as part of even their religious practice. So is God leading them by His Holy Spirit in opposite directions regarding faithful practice and holy living? No. No. So our conscience is a distinct part of ourselves, of our thinking of our mind of our brain of our you know, cognitive abilities that sits in a sense as a judge over the rest of our thinking and action and words it's distinct from the holy spirit it can be good or bad these are hu these are huge things to understand about conscience so then the question is if it can be good or bad then how is it formed and what can we do to form it so that it will be good, right? That would be an important question. And when we look at the formation of conscience, there's kind of a logical understanding and something that we observe um, and it becomes clear is that our conscience is a result, that the way our conscience operates is a result of multiple factors. Now, I already talked about, for those of you who said, before I was a Christian, I did one thing, and after I was a Christian, I did another thing. I wanna ask you, 
is there anything in your life five years ago, even as a believer, that you either did or didn't do that you've changed your mind on and your conscience has led you in a different direction? Again, I'm hoping that's true because I'm hoping we're all growing. I'm hoping we're all maturing. And so what we find out is that our conscience is dynamic, meaning it changes. It's not static, meaning it stays the same. It's a changing reality. And so it is built and formed by various factors. One is our culture. You know, you think about um, there's broad cultural trends. That's a part of our culture, like the, the country you grow up in or the region of the country you grow up in. You know, I think about how uh, my conscience leads me to do different things because I grew up in Tennessee than it would for someone who grows up here. And it's not to, you know, talk badly about one or the other. It's just I notice little things like... Um, uh, I get a little bit of guilt, and you can think whatever you want about this, if I go through a door before a woman, okay? It's just how I grew up. The woman goes first. So I feel kind of bad if, if I go first. Now, I don't think women are weak. I don't think they need to go in front of me because there's something I'm better or anything like that. It's just how I was brought up, and it's hard to get rid of, right? It's just in there. And so when it happens, I get a little bit of a... And if I notice it, I get a little pang of guilt, you know? But that's part of the culture. And we also have our family cultures. There are things that, um, you know, in our family, so for example, Sonia growing up, uh, when we, whenever we would leave the house from her parents' house, they would come outside and stand on the porch and wave to us as we were leaving. That didn't happen in my home. I would call, you know, from downstairs, I'm leaving, and someone may or may not respond, and then I would leave. That's if they were lucky. I might just leave, right? And so when we got married, there was conflict over me leaving without doing all of the, what I would call the ritual, but a good ritual around connecting before you part, right? And I see my Latino friends are like, yes, right? And they're probably thinking, duh, that's so obvious. But it wasn't a part of my culture, so I didn't have any kind of internal moral compunction around it. So I had to learn it. But I've, I've gotten better. I do it at least half the time now, at least, maybe more. Right, so I've gotten better. My conscience is growing and changing. So there's those types of culture. And also the things we're taught will affect what our conscience, how our conscience is formed. So when you have religious instruction or any other kind of moral instruction, if you study philosophy, if you, you know, any types of things that you learn or that you're taught can impact the way your conscience responds to your thoughts, your words, and your actions. This is just something that we've all experienced. And then finally, there is our personal development and our experiences and the way that we as individuals begin to think about the world, right? So, you know, some people, they have really difficult circumstances in life. And I remember, uh, you know, this is so dated, um, but was it, um, I think it was the movie Wall Street, where the main character says, greed is good. He had come to the conclusion, based on his experience, his own development of thought, that greed is good. There was nothing uh, previously in his childhood, his upbringing probably, that taught him that greed is good, but he had determined that on his own. So there's our culture, broad and local and family. 
there's what we are taught, and then there's our experiences and our own development of our thought. And so your conscience can be formed in a way that is helpful to you following the Lord, right? Or it can be defiled and corrupted and develop in a way that is hurtful to you following the Lord. And here's the other thing. Your conscience is not uniform, meaning you don't just get uh, a better moral perspective or a worse one. You might be a person who has gained respect around the ideas of authority in such a way that you are more responsive to authorities over you, but it may also cause you to treat people who are under your authority poorly, more poorly than you used to. So you can see that parts of our conscience can be formed in a more righteous way while other parts can be formed in a less righteous way. It's not, it's not just positive or negative. It's, it's varied and it's complex. So uh, let's confi- consider just a few examples of, around this. So one of the examples that I thought of is, uh, can, you, can you just imagine growing up in the 1600s? It's the 1600s or maybe the 1500s, or maybe the 1400s, or how about all of history? And someone says to you, is slavery wrong? Now, at that point in time, every nation on the earth practiced some form of slavery. For most of those nations, it had nothing to do with race, it had everything to do with just the ability of one group or individual to exert power over another group or individual, right? Uh, So the Romans would conquer a territory, they'd take people as slaves. The Chinese had slaves. The Africans had slaves. Uh, Native Americans had slaves. Every culture had slaves. But if any of you today were asked, do you think slavery is wrong? I'm guessing that every single one of you would say, it's absolutely wrong to own another human being, right? Is it that every single one of us as individuals is so much morally superior to every individual that ever lived on the face of the earth before us? No. We've been influenced and impacted by the culture that we've grown up in. Now, that's a good thing. It's good for your conscience to be formed in part by your culture because there are certain things that we may not come to on our own that we come to through our culture. By the way, this is one reason, but not the only one. It's one reason why it's important as believers of Jesus Christ to be part of a community of Christ because the culture of that community can help form our conscience in ways that we would not be able to on our own. You see that? So uh, here's another example. This is kind of a fun one. When I was growing up, I used to love this TV show called The Dukes of Hazard. Has anyone ever seen The Dukes of Hazard? The Duke boys, Luke and Duke, are cousins. They've got Uncle Jesse. They've got the General Lee. I know it has a Confederate flag on it, but I grew up loving the show. And in the Dixie, da 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 and they would jump their car. And why did they jump their car and drive so fast? Because they were running from the police in every single episode. But their family was a group of moonshiners. That started in Prohibition and continued after selling illegal booze all across Georgia. And for some reason, the people chasing them, particularly Roscoe P. Coltrane, was the most inept officer of the law in the state of Georgia, and he could never catch them in the act. And as long as they were not caught in the act, then they would not be in violation of their probation because they had already been caught before. 
you probably don't even remember the backstory of Dukes of Hazard, do you? But that's what was going on. That's why they were always running from the law. That's why Boss Hogg was always out to get them and put them under, and they just kept running away. Now, here's the thing. As moonshiners, they seem to have no moral problem with running from the police in every single episode. And I didn't either. I thought it was great. I, had no, I saw no problems whatsoever with this. But you know what? That's pretty messed up. It's pretty messed up. You see how little things like a TV show can impact your conscience. I know Christians who, as believers, were completely opposed to, let's use the example of drinking alcohol, who now drink alcohol without any moral conviction. And I know Christians who used to drink alcohol who no longer drink alcohol with no moral convictions. You see, like, do you see how these things can shift? I remember when I went to seminary, one of the most shocking things was the young students who, in the name of my freedom in Christ, would have the foulest language I had ever heard anywhere. (laughs) And these people want to be pastors. And I would say, why do you talk like that? Oh, because we have freedom in Christ. (sighs) Okay. All right, if that's your story and you stick to it. They They were rebelling against something, right, for the most part. But, you know, how do you judge someone else's conscience? Um... It used to be common for Christians not to attend certain type of movies or watch certain TV shows. I hardly ever hear about that anymore. Although that's something that we take very much to heart in our family. There's certain things that we don't watch. And, um, you know, even we start watching a TV show. If it goes a direction, we stop watching it because we find that that's really important. Now, that's our moral conviction, but that may not be yours. And so I've seen these shifts in in the way the consciences of believers have changed over time in response to culture, in response to the ways they think, um, um, looking at freedom of Christ. And so the bottom line is that our conscience is a product of many complex factors, and your conscience is your own. So we talked about how it's not perfect and it can fail you and it's not always trustworthy, but this is huge. Your conscience is your own. It is not anyone else's. No one else can make you change your conscience. It's actually hard for you to consciously change your conscience, intentionally change your conscience. It's unique to you. So while the Holy Spirit definitely works with our conscience at times, he must also work in opposition to it at other times. And although it's innate to all of us human beings, it must be developed, it must be cultivated, it must be shaped and formed. And we can either develop it well or we can develop it poorly. And everyone has moral blind spots. So everyone's conscience is deficient. But everyone who forms their conscience around the things of Christ, will find it's an incredibly helpful tool. In 1 Timothy 4.2, Paul describes peoples whose consciences have been seared, so not corrupted and defiled, but seared as with a hot iron. What happens when you sear something with a hot iron? I think of, um, 
movies I've seen where, you know, they're, you know, period piece movies where someone gets an injury, they're shot with an arrow, or they're stabbed with a sword, and someone takes the, the iron and sticks it in the fire, and they come over and, right, to cauterize the wound. And what happens with that spot on your body after it's cauterized? It's burned, and it usually burns, uh, if it's a severe enough burn, which that would be, it actually burns your nerve endings. And so oftentimes you can't even feel anything there anymore. So there's a corrupted conscience, and then there's a seared conscience. This is a conscience that doesn't have strong convictions about anything. How would a conscience be, be seared? I think one of the ways that you sear your conscience is by consistently and repeatedly violating it. Now, there's a question Paul doesn't answer. Can you heal a seared conscience? My hope, my hope and kind of my personal intuitive belief is that you can, but it sounds like something that would be really hard to do. So we don't want to sear our conscience. Um, Paul says people with a seared conscience are hypocrites and liars. And we can certainly see some of these types of people in the church today, which is exactly what Paul was warning Timothy about. He wasn't warning Timothy about unbelievers. He was talking about people who are in the church who are now preaching things contrary to the gospel because their consciences are seared as with a hot iron. You know, when we use self-deception, when we blatantly ignore our conscience or the, 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 the commands of Scripture... Um, we end up unable to see the lies about the gospel. And I was talking with a friend just um, Friday, and he was saying to me, you know, I had thought so much. There's a, there's a passage in the Bible that says, in the end times, there'll be all sorts of people who, lead, who will try to lead the people of Christ astray. Right? They'll tell lies and and start rumors, and whatever they can do to lead the people of Christ astray. And he said, you know, I always thought of that in terms of spiritual lies. But more and more, I'm beginning to think that it's just general lies, generally leading people into falsehood, generally leading people astray. And and my response was, how could it be otherwise? How could you be able to discern truth in every area of your life except one? It's far more likely that people would be unable to discern truth in general and therefore begin to believe lies about Jesus and about their faith and about the gospel. People who've grown up in the church, who've been with Jesus, who've walked with the Lord, and yet they begin to believe all sorts of lies. And so these things, this, this work on the conscience can happen in subtle and sometimes seemingly innocuous ways. Sometimes it even looks like godliness. Sometimes our wrong conscience looks like godliness. So, for example, in that passage, Paul warns about people in the church. They forbid people to marry, and they teach them to avoid certain foods. Now, in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul encourages, actually encourages believers not to get married. He says, look, your life is devoted to Christ. You don't need to, to get married to, to be able to follow Jesus. In fact, you can follow him better if you're single. And as much as I love being married, I definitely feel that tension in my life between following the Lord and 
providing for and being with and caring for my family as much as I love you guys so much. It's not that I don't want to, it's that I feel the tension between it because there's always a draw, a pull for more and more and more to serve the Lord, but also to more and more and more to be with your family. But here are people who forbid people to marry. So it might look like godliness. They might give all the right reasons that Paul gave. And yet, in their forbidding others to marry, they're no longer operating under a clean conscience or a right conscience. People who want to avoid certain types of foods, maybe avoiding food that was sacrificed to an idol and then sold in the market. Oh, you don't want to eat that. It was, it's corrupted by an idol. Sounds like holiness. Sounds like righteousness. You know, in our age today, I don't know if anyone's been watching. It's been mentioned here and other places uh, that rise and fall of Mars Hill. Has anyone actually started listening to it? It's really good. It's actually, I think, a really important um, um, podcast from Christianity Today. Uh, but in that podcast, they talk about, and you hear from his own words, the pastor of Mars Hill was a guy named Mark Driscoll, and Mars Hill was a church in Seattle, Washington. And from the pulpit, he's using uh, pressure, and I would say even guilt, to get young men and young women to marry as quickly as possible and have as many children as possible as a part of their faithfulness to Christ. So he has all sorts of great reasons, but by putting that pressure and even using guilt to do it, he's doing the exact same thing as the people who were forbidding people to marry, except he was almost forcing them to marry. And hey, maybe a lot of good things came out of that, but that's not how God wants us to encourage people to do things, right? Um, you shouldn't use spiritual pressure to force people to do something they're not ready to do. But this, and he would say that if you want to follow the Lord, you need to get married early, have lots of kids. Oh, and wives had to stay home. So if your wife was working at Mars Hill, you were not eligible to be in leadership. And this is like a really kind of controlling kind of thing, and it's, but it's just in a different direction. So this kind of stuff happens, um, and people are able to do that without violating their conscience because their conscience has been seared. And sometimes they do it with the full support of the church because people believe it looks like holiness. So conscience is a tricky thing. It's malleable. It's impressionable. Uh, it can be corrected, it can be corrupted, and as we said before, it's not, um, it's not uniform. It, it can be corrected in one way and corrupted in another. So my conscience can allow me to do things um, in one circumstance that it wouldn't allow me to do the exact same thing in a different circumstance for no reason other than that, hey, I actually want to do it here and I don't want to do it there. Sometimes our conscience just gives us the answer we want to hear. So we have to be careful about that. So I've said all these things about a conscience that don't sound positive. So the question is, can we trust it? Can you trust your own conscience? Can you, can you, be, can you believe that it will help keep you from error and keep you from sin if we know that it's susceptible to error? And we've already seen examples of where it led people into sin. And so the answer is no, you can't trust your conscience, but yes, you can. 
is a both and, and it has to be. So to begin with, we have to admit that our conscience is not perfect. It cannot be trusted explicitly. It cannot be trusted completely. It cannot be trusted on its own. But it's untrustworthy in the same way, and this may hit you in a weird way, in the same way that reasoning and logic are not trustworthy. We have seen over and over and over and over and over again people who use reason and logic to justify the worst possible things. Right? And we've all done it ourselves. Right? We can justify almost anything if you give us enough time. And there was a great book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt where he talks about how our, our mind is employed often to affirm and confirm the things that we already believe. And it's important for us to recognize that so that we don't let it get out of control. It's not perfect in the same way that our intuition is not perfect. Your intuition can lead you right a lot of times, but at some point you're going to miss something. At some point your intuition is going to lead you in the wrong direction. It can't be perfect because you're not perfect. And look, it's the same sense in which listening to the Holy Spirit can fail you because sometimes you don't hear well what God is saying. It's not that the Spirit is wrong or that the Spirit's incapable. It's that we are imperfect vessels to receive message from the Holy Spirit. And by the way, you can say, well, you match it up with Scripture. Sometimes we read the Scripture wrong, right? Do all Christians who are righteous and God-seeking, do they all agree on everything in the Scripture? No. So that leaves us with a bit of a challenge, doesn't it? But here's the thing. Two points on that. One, your conscience, it's one of the best tools you have to make moral choices. So just because it's not perfect doesn't mean you don't throw it away. Just like you don't throw away your reason, I encourage you not to throw away your intuition. Don't throw away the Holy Spirit and don't throw away the Bible. Right? Instead, use them all together. So you go to your con- your conscience will be the first part of you that gives a moral judgment on your thoughts, words, actions, and by the way, on the thoughts, words, and actions of others. Your conscience will be the first judge. But then it's up to you to say, okay, let's bring in the other voices. Let's bring in the other judges. Let's listen to the Lord. Let's read the scripture, what it has to say. Let's think about this. Let's do it in community with others who have different perspectives. And what is my gut telling me? And all these things come together to help you make good moral choices. So you don't, you don't reject it. I mean, any of, again, like I, I was reading just, just this week about the, I forget the name of the man, who in 1984 was blowing up abortion clinics. Do you know why he blew them up? God told me to blow up abortion clinics. So listening to the Lord can lead you in some horrible directions if you're doing it in isolation and you don't bring in the other voices. It's so important. But if you were to try to discern right from wrong without a conscience, without the Word of God, without the Holy Spirit, without your intuition, without reasoning, and without your community, where would that leave you? Much worse off, right? So the tools we have are the tools we have. So they're not perfect, but we have to use them, and we have to use them uh, intelligently. We have to use them thoughtfully. And here's the other thing is you can't just ignore 
what your conscience tells you, even if it's wrong. All right. In 1 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says this. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Okay? Paul, a believer, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the most faithful people in the history of the world, says, my conscience is clear, but it doesn't make me innocent. Okay? So he doesn't trust it completely. He says, I'm in the Lord's hands. But in Romans 14, he talks about what happens when we deny our conscience. So here's the setup. Romans 14, Paul's talking to believers in Rome. He's never met them. He's never been to Rome. This is a church that he did not plant. So the book of Romans is in some ways the most complete uh, communication of Paul's theology, his perspective on life, how we should live, because he hasn't taught these people yet. Unlike almost every other letter he's written, he's already taught a lot. He's just correcting some misunderstandings. But here he just kind of lays out the whole thing. Near the end of Romans, by the way, the book of Romans really at its heart is about how do we live in Christian community. That's what it's all about. So near the end of Romans in chapter 14, he recognizes that there's a conflict in the community in Rome that he's trying to address. And the conflict is this. As I mentioned before, almost every piece of meat sold in the market in the ancient world would have been the result of a sacrifice to a false god or to an idol. Okay? So if you have a cow or a pig or a sheep or whatever it is, and you want to sell the meat, you're first going to go to the priest and have him sacrifice it. And the priest is going to take a little bit, right? And they're going to burn a little bit of it completely on the altar for the god, for the idol, for the false god. And then the priest gets to keep the rest, but he's not going to eat it all. He's going to take it and sell it in the market. And that's how he's going to make money. And that's where you're going to get meat in the market. Otherwise, you just kind of kill your own animal if you have them. So here are these Christians who are saying, we can't eat that meat. It's been sacrificed to an idol. It's tainted. It's not right. Uh, and then there are other Christians who are saying, we can eat the meat because those, those aren't even real gods. They're nothing. So we can eat the meat. And then they also had this argument over whether they should celebrate special holy days Maybe it was the Sabbath. Maybe it was the festivals in the Old Testament. I don't know. But they want to celebrate these holy days. And there are other Christians who say, no, in Jesus, every day is holy. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. So which one is right and which one is wrong? Should you not eat the meat because it's an affront to Christ? And he's the only real God, so you can't eat meat sacrificed to another? Or do you eat the meat because Christ is the only real God, and so those gods are nothing? Do you honor the holy days because God made them holy? Or do you not honor the holy days because God made every day holy? I mean, they each have good-sounding support, right? So Paul comes in, and here's what he said. So look in Romans 14, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to read it to you. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak only eats vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. 
And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. <coughs> so right off the bat, Paul says, don't get caught up in these arguments. This is not whether Jesus died on the cross. This is not whether Jesus is eternal. <coughs> Excuse me. This is, a, this is a disputable matter. The Bible doesn't say yes or no on this. So don't get caught up in controversy. Now, what's very interesting and what some people won't like is that the one who feel they can't do it because of their conscience, those are the ones Paul calls weak. And the ones who feel they can do it based on their conscience, those are the ones Paul calls strong. So a weak conscience is one that has less freedom in Christ to do things. And a strong conscience or a strong faith is one who has more freedom in Christ and is more able to do things. That's interesting. And he says, don't treat the people who have a weak conscience or a weak faith or the weak brother, don't treat them with contempt. And we're going to look at what that means. And don't treat the strong one. Don't judge them. Because God's the only one who can judge them. So he goes on to say, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. He says, look, we're all in this together. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's saying we've got this moral question and we've got this contra uh, contrast between the function of different people's consciences. And what he does is he says, we're going to draw this back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's get back to the things that matter most. Right? What is it that you always say to the... Get it back to the... Um, <laughs> the heart of the matter, the core issue, something like that. Yeah. The bottom line. Let's get it back to the bottom line. The bottom line is not whether you eat meat or not. The bottom line is that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He rose from the dead so that he can be the God of the living and the dead and he's your Lord and you are answerable to him first. As surely, uh, oh, oh, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? He's talking to the weak brother right now or the weak sister. Why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat as it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So he's like, we're going to be before the Lord. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. By the word, that word stumbling block is, is the where we get the word scandalized. Don't cause your brother to stumble. Don't scandalize your brother or sister. Here's Paul. This is really so fascinating to me. Here Paul gives his judgment on the question. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Now Paul is not saying there that you can do whatever you want. Okay? And this 
is not about like, oh, well, uh, I mean, this is another issue for another day, but like, oh, well, I can smoke marijuana. It's fine. It's legal now, so anything can be clean. Or, oh, I can, uh, I mean, people were using this argument in Corinth to go to temple prostitutes. I mean, you can't just, it's not a blanket argument for anything. But he's talking about food. He's saying there's no food that is in itself unclean. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating, and there, here, here's where it comes back to the cross, do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Paul's saying something like this, how dare you? Jesus died for that person and now you're going to kill them? spiritually do you think nothing of the sacrifice of jesus christ it's great for you but then you scorn it when it's for someone else that you don't agree with so how do you destroy someone for whom christ has died well one way you do that he's what he says do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of god is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better for you not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to stumble, to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not consent, condemn himself by what he approves. So here's what he's saying. Look, if you're one of those people that have more freedom in Christ, don't use your freedom to destroy your brother or sister who doesn't. So with the food, what he says is this. And, and he actually uh, talks about it in other places as well. But it's the concept of don't, don't go to your brother or sister who's weak and show up with you know, a rack of lamb that they know has been sacrificed to an idol because you put them in a very compromising situation. Don't flaunt your freedom. So if nothing else, those friends of mine in seminary who curse like sailors, if nothing else, they were flaunting their freedom in Christ and, and risked damaging the souls of others who had a weaker conscience. If nothing else, we could actually argue that they shouldn't have been doing it in the first place from scripture but if they were if that was one of those things where they had freedom that not everyone had they shouldn't have been flaunting it they shouldn't have been putting it in people's faces he says keep it between you and god i think a lot of christians operate this way around alcohol you don't need to flaunt whether you drink or don't drink keep it between you and god it doesn't need to be this huge thing don't shame people who drink and don't shame people who don't drink. Right? We don't do that. That's not godly. That shows a disdain for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now here, this final thing that he says. Whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat. Meaning if you're one of the people who don't have the same freedom in Christ, but you do it anyway, maybe you think, oh, I think it's wrong to to eat meat sacrificed to idols or I think it's wrong to drink or I think it's wrong to watch a certain TV show or I think it's wrong to XYZ oh but Pastor Steve, Stephen was talking about it in his sermon 
so I guess I'm just going to do it anyway. Or, but my friend invited me over to watch that show, so I think I'll just do it anyway. Or, you know, my family member was serving alcohol and I felt pressure to do it anyway. If you do that, he says you're condemned in your eating or your drinking or your watching because your eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. What he's saying is if you think it's wrong and you do it anyway, you're violating your conscience and that is a sin because your belief is that God won't let you, but you're doing it anyway. However, if you think it's okay to do it, but you do it in such a way that causes someone else to stumble or fall, then now you're also in violation of God's commandment because you're not acting out of love. And love is more important than what you eat or drink. Right? These are huge things. So Paul says, don't judge one another. Don't treat each other with contempt. Uh, it's totally fine as far as he's concerned to eat the meat and not have those special days. So he actually believes the weaker brother's conscience is wrong, but he says, don't treat them with contempt and don't judge them for it. And then they shouldn't judge the other ones either. He says, you can destroy someone this way. Don't flaunt it. Okay? Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Anything that does not come from faith is sin. So we can kind of come up with a rule here. I think we've talked about a lot. So how do we condense this? So here's our, our rule, if you will. Um, I think I have this. Ah, number one, your conscience is a powerful tool given by God. It's a good thing. You need it, and you need to use it, and you need to pay attention to it. Your conscience can be wrong, so you need to treat it carefully. It will not always lead you in the right direction. So it's a good thing, but it's not a perfect thing, okay? Um, it shouldn't be violated. If you think that you ought not to do something and you do it anyway, you're in error and God's going to hold you to account for that, okay? So that's huge. Even if it's leading you... Now, this is a really important distinction. If your conscience is telling you to do something that would hurt somebody, that's different, and, you, and, you, uh, and then you don't do it. That's different from your conscience telling you not to do something, but you do it anyway. Does that make sense? So it's different if you're, you know, like, uh, uh, if your conscience allows you to do something, is what I mean, but it's actually wrong in God's eyes, then it's wrong, and you need to be corrected. But if your conscience is preventing you from doing something that's okay to do, then you need to still not do it. Now, Paul actually does give them a correction. He's like, hey, as far as I'm concerned, it's okay. So if your conscience can change, that's fine. Then you can begin to do that thing. But if your conscience still tells you it's wrong, you cannot violate it. But just because your conscience says something is okay doesn't mean it is. Does that make sense? All right, and then the final thing is uh, we must not violate other people's conscience. And we do that in one of two ways. We don't try to get others to do something they think is wrong. That's treating it with contempt. But we also don't uh, judge others because of their freedom in Christ. Okay? So that's kind of our, our rule of conscience if we were to kind of distill everything that we've looked at so far. And uh, I know it's, um, I've been going on, because it's a big topic. I just want to take a few minutes 
to address this question of conscientious objection because this is an objection of conscience and we haven't really talked about the topic we started with and, and honestly like my goal is not to tell people I have no interest in telling you whether or not you should be vaccinated well, let's just start there that's not what I, but I'm seeing how this issue is coming to the fore in our society because of what's been going on so we need to talk about what these religious exemptions are and what a conscientious objector is so um, the word religious or the phrase religious exemption is not a biblical phrase it's a legal phrase it's a political phrase so you're not going to find uh, religious exemptions in the Bible um, and then a religious exemption what it is is just a waiver to say the the company or the school or the state or the federal government has issued a law or a mandate or a rule and you want to be exempt from that rule without any consequences that's what a religious exemption is no consequences even though you're not following the rules so there's tons of examples of people in the Bible who refuse to follow the rules so that's that's you're on pretty firm ground as a believer to say I do not have to follow all the laws and rules if they're contrary to the law of God or the law of Christ so for example you've got Daniel you remember Daniel and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego Daniel's told by King Darius you need to pray to me and only to me and Daniel says well you know what I do every day actually is um, is that I go out on my balcony and I pray towards Jerusalem because I pray to the God of Israel and Darius is like all right well don't do it for these days and what does Daniel do? He goes out on his balcony, kneels down towards Israel, and he prays the way he always did. He doesn't go in his closet. He could have done it secretly. But he says, I'm just going to keep doing it the way I was doing it. Did he get a religious exemption? N no, he got fed to the lions. It is totally appropriate for believers to avoid laws, mandates, rules that are contrary to the law of God and pay the price for it. And pay the price. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they didn't do what they were told, did they get off the hook? I mean, sort of. They got put in the fire, and all the fire did was uh, take their, their binds off. <laughs> so God can intervene, but it's not a biblical concept to have a religious exemption. That's a modern political concept. And that's okay. Like, if you can get it, and it's reasonable and to do, then that's fine. I'm just saying... That's not what the examples in the Bible are. Peter and John are before the Sadducees, and they say, stop preaching Christ. And Peter says, uh, you judge whether we should listen to man or whether we should listen to God. And then what do the Sadducees do repeatedly? Arrest them, beat them, you know, like they're not exempt. They're just not going to follow a law or a rule or a mandate that they think is unjust or against the law of God. And in most cases, it's either about directly being denied the ability to worship God, or it's about preventing them from sharing something good like the gospel with others, or denying doing harm to others. And that's also important. So, from God's perspective, He expects us to do the right thing, even if it means we face a penalty of, of some kind, up to and including losing our lives. God feels that he's worth you dying for. I'm going to say that again. God feels that he is worth you dying for and me dying for. 
And we need to remember that as modern Christians. You know, we know right now, in the last weeks, we know that Christians were murdered in Afghanistan. We know that happened. We know that Christians have been murdered in uh, certain countries in Asia, the Middle East. We know that Christians have been murdered in Africa. We know that Christians have been murdered uh, right here in our country just for being Christian. God is worth that. He's worth it. But when we do get a religious exemption, it means that we have to receive it on the terms of the people who offer it. Okay, this is also really important. Since a religious exemption is not a biblical concept, it's not a right from God. It, it really isn't. Um, you have the right to not go against your conscience, but then you might pay a price for it. A religious exemption is, the, is doing what your conscience tells you and not paying a price for it. And God doesn't give you that right. But you shouldn't violate your conscience. So if you find that you can't do something and you want a religious exemption, you have to do it on the terms of the people who offer it. So what are those terms? Well, the government typically requires that a person who wants an exemption to have a sincerely held religious belief and conviction that prevents them from complying with the law. So I'm going to give you another quick example to show you how this works in a different context. So I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but pastors have the ability to exempt themselves from Social Security tax. You know the FICA uh, things is taken out of your check? Every time you get paid, government's like, I'm taking that money, I'm taking that money, I'm taking that money. Pastors can sign a form and not have to pay that tax because they're getting paid for religious services, so clergy member. But if you sign the form, what you're saying is that under penalty of perjury, that you actually have a religious conviction that prevents you from taking part in any social insurance program. Okay? You can't sign the form and say, well, I'm signing it because I think Social Security is a bad idea. I'm signing it because I think the government wastes my money. I'm signing it because I don't know if it will be solvent by the time I retire. I'm signing it for this. No, no. You're either signing it for their reason or you're not signing it. Okay? And then if you don't pay your FICA tax without signing it, then you can go to jail. <laughs> like that's, that's the response, right? And God says, hey, if you have a religious conviction that's not the one they're giving you an exemption for, that's fine, but you will pay the consequence. So, in other words, a minister has to believe it's morally wrong to accept any kind of money, public money, because of their death, their disability, medical needs, poverty, or retirement, Right? Not because they think it's a bad investment. They have to actually think it's morally wrong to receive public money for those things. Now, in the same manner, a request for a religious exemption from COVID typically looks like this. A Christian must believe on religious grounds that it violates their conscience to take a vaccine. That's how most of the exemptions are worded. It's not that you don't like this vaccine, that you're scared of this vaccine, that this vaccine is unproven. If you want the religious exemption, which again is different from whether or not you follow your conscience, you have to do it on their terms. All right? So you have to, th it, it, you know, there are Christians, I've seen websites of Christians trying to teach people what to say and what not to say to get a COVID exemption. They'll say, don't mention that you think this is a bad vaccine. 
Don't mention that because you, you won't get your exemption. That might be your reason, but don't say it. What you need to say instead is that you're opposed to vaccines. You see? Now, if you're opposed to vaccines, then you can sign that and get your exemption. But if you're not, you can't. Uh, I would say it's morally problematic to lie to get a religious exemption for something. Right? Does that, does that make sense? Like, don't lie about your faith to get something that you want. That's a bad idea. Your conscience might have words with you about that. And if it doesn't, then there's work to be done. Right? This is huge. Um, there are Christians who don't like, for example, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was built on a stem cell line that was created from stem cells from an abortion in 1985. Not the actual fetal cells, but the cells derived from those cells. You might think that's wrong. I, I don't like it. And I'm very much opposed to abortion. But that's not what I would be signing if I signed for a religious exemption. See, I would be saying that I'm opposed to vaccines. And I can't do that. Now, again, you might, and that's a different story. We're just talking about how it plays out. Now, here's the problem, is, is that a lot of Christians are blatantly online, in YouTube videos, from the pulpit, telling people to lie, essentially, to get their exemption. So what does that do? Schools, workplaces, government, they don't have to offer this exemption. It's not a requirement. Many of them are having discussions right now about removing these religious exemptions and removing religious exemptions in general because they see how often they're violated and they are intentionally lied about and it's very hard to prove someone's lying and they don't want to go through with it so they're just gonna remove the whole thing altogether that's not a good thing it is not a good thing for our culture to decide that religious exemptions are a bad idea because the moment will come when we will need them to avoid all the bad consequences or we will have to go against those rules and laws and pay the consequences. I've heard a lot of Christians using the phrase conscientious objector as well. Traditionally that means someone who doesn't want to fight in a war, doesn't want to kill someone, it goes against their conscience. It doesn't have to be religious by the way, that you can have any reason, as long as it's sincerely held belief that you shouldn't harm another human being. But you know what happened for most conscientious objectors in World War I, World War II, even Vietnam? They served in a way that didn't require them to kill someone. They served as medics. They served as support. They served as cooks. They served as uh, field uh, uh, doc, you know, operators on the f for the field for, for treating people who were wounded. You know, they, they didn't just exempt themselves from everything. They just exempted themselves from the one thing they couldn't do, right? And then some of those men and women were some of the bravest people. I forget the name. What was the, there was a movie. Yes. Is that the one where he saved, uh, he saved countless people. He even saved the enemy. He saved, he saved their, the ones they were fighting against. But at the risk of his life, continually going into the field of battle, at the risk of his life, to drag people off who had been wounded without discriminating between the Americans or were they fighting the Germans at that point and the Germans. I mean, that's bravery. That's heroism. That's at sacrifice of yourself going to save others because you believe that it's wrong to take a life, so you go and save a life. 
this is where things get, they get difficult. Because I want to stand here and say, your conscience is your conscience. And I don't want you, as your pastor, I don't want you to violate it. Now, I don't know, I don't know who has convictions one way or the other about these things. I don't know. But I don't want you to violate your conscience. And if for whatever reason you feel like you can't get that vaccine, then it's like put on a mask because that's a little sacrifice for the lives of others. That's why when our kids can't be vaccinated, we're going to wear a mask. And, I, and I've even been thinking, and it's, just a, it's like a heart struggle for me. Should we all be wearing masks every Sunday in here? Because we have kids who can't be vaccinated. You know, and you can think what you want about how effective those masks are. But if I can do anything to help anyone, I mean, what was the guy's name? A hacksaw? Desmond Dawes was willing to give up his life to protect others. I need to be willing to be uncomfortable to protect others. So it's tricky. And what I want to say is this also. Regardless of what my opinion is about this and what your opinion is, because that's what they are, they're opinions. The Bible doesn't tell us which vaccines to take and where to wear masks. It doesn't. So these are, these are what Paul calls um, disputable matters. Whatever my opinion on this is, in no way do I want any of us to judge or treat with contempt one another or anyone out there because of their stance. But, like Paul, I do want to say, hey, in my mind, my mind is made up. Like, I got vaccinated. And when I feel like the moment's appropriate, I wear a mask, and I still do. So I want to say my conscience is clear on this, but that doesn't mean it's right. My mind's made up, but that doesn't mean it's right. But no matter what, let's not treat each other in a way that doesn't reflect the character of Jesus Christ. So if I were to have some takeaways here, it's just this. Our conscience is a tricky thing, but it's also a powerful tool for discerning moral truth. It needs to be used alongside our reason, including our reasoning about Scripture, our intuition, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and our community, right? Because it's not infallible. It's not perfect, so it can lead us astray. But our conscience needs to be intentionally formed by who we spend time with, by what we read, by what we watch on television, including the news. And what we take in will form our conscience for better or for worse. So we must treat our conscience with care so that it is not defiled or seared and become a tool for sin. And we need to be in communities that do not treat our conscience or each other's conscience with contempt or with judgment, but rather lovingly sacrificing, according to Paul, even our freedoms to accommodate one another. It is in these conditions that our conscience can most fully serve to align our thoughts, words, and actions to the righteousness of God. So I want to pray for us, but as I do, I want you to be thinking um, and asking the Lord, where do you want to reform my conscience? Where do you want to reshape my own perspective on these things? And is there anything that I've done that would be hurtful to one of my brothers or sisters in Christ because of their conscience that I may need to repent of by going to them 
telling them I'm sorry or changing the way I behave or act or think about those people. So that's what I want you to reflect on as I pray. Father, you've, you've given us this incredible tool. It's, an, it's a gift. And yet we know that because of our own brokenness, because of our own sin, we are so inclined to take your good gifts and we use them in ways that are not always the way that you intend. So God, help us now in this moment. Speak to us uh, through your word, through your spirit, through, through this community. Truths that we need to hear about or that may correct or confront our own conscientious convictions. And God, in the same way, may we be corrected and challenged if we are being judgmental or treating others with contempt because of their own conscience. God, we need your Holy Spirit to speak to us. We need you to reveal through your word your truth for us. But God, in these disputable matters where we don't know the answer, teach us that it's more important to live in love, joy, peace, the Spirit, and with har in harmony with one another. And God, things are probably only going to get harder in our society around these issues in the coming weeks and months. Use us in our workplaces, homes, families, communities to be people of grace, to display a type of love and care for others that the world probably won't even understand and may even get mad at us for feeling that and speaking that way because they want us to condemn whoever they disagree with. But God, we don't want to be that person. We want to be a Christ-honoring person. with respect and with with um, incredible care the gift that is Christ dying for them just as he died for us